Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, so let me introduce those of you who are new to the show, even though we've been on for four years. Uh, my name is Nikki Nellis, and I cover the D.C. food and wine scene and have been doing so for the last 18 years. Maybe you hear me on Foodie and the Beast, the only food and wine variety show in the D.C. metro area uh, that airs every Sunday on 1500. I'm sure you hear me on WTOP, uh, the number one news station in the country on radio. And I uh, do roundups and reports on what's happening uh, in the food and wine scene, not just locally, but nationally as well. Um, of course, there is Industry Night, this show, which used to be out of the Lion Hotel and now airs on Real Fun DC. And where it all started, the list, are you on it.com, the online e-zine that talks about every food and wine event going on in the DC metro area. But first, Foodie and the Beast officially hit teendom. Uh, my husband and I have been doing Foodie and the Beast for the last 13 years. Um, and our little show has just grown and grown uh, over time. And it's really exciting. We are ever grateful to an incredible talent that shares their stories with us, to the listeners that join us every week, and to our amazing producer, Andy, who truly keeps the show steady and on course. And of course, I have to thank our sponsors who keep us keep us alive and the station who has been incredibly supportive. Um, we could not do what we do on that show without any of them. And I feel incredibly fortunate to have a food and wine variety show on air for 13 years and moving on into our 14th. Um, so second, it's been a really good week of eating. You know, with COVID and everything for so long, I felt like I wasn't getting my enough of my food intake, but now it's it's really back up and running. Um, so it wasn't just one anniversary of 13 years old on air. It is actually my husband and my 25th wedding anniversary. And I just want to say that's a really long time to be with one person. Um, but we've done it. So as many of you know, um, my husband and I should be barely dressed and traipsing around Sardinia right now, but we're not because of COVID. And uh, I really wanted to make our anniversary special for him because he's really depressed about not being in Italy right now. Um, so instead, we invited some friends over to celebrate and we also asked the chefs from Fat Nomad to come and cook at our house. Um, these two women cooked up an amazing, amazing feast of Thai food, um, dishes that you don't normally see in Thai restaurants, uh, not just locally, but but nationally, um, slippery noodles and betel leaf wraps and massive bowls of prawns. It was just dish after dish after dish of deliciousness. Um, it was really fabulous. There was one dish that did have some sort of peppers in it. My curly hair became straight for about 20 minutes, but that part aside, it was amazing. And as somebody who loves to entertain in my house, it was hard to give up my kitchen to the professionals. But it was an amazing experience. My guests had a wonderful time. And I really am looking forward to having them again and introducing them to a new slew of people. Now, I did get a sneak peek at Lardante, the new property that opened this week by my good friend and fab chef, uh, David Deshaies. Um, a Michelle Richard acolyte, David has taken his French whim whimsy that we all enjoy at Central, an unconventional diner 
and applied it to all the Italian dishes that are now served at La Dante. He uh, does not do this alone. He has curated a pretty good team. Uh, Lena Ali is the chef de cuisine. Andy Clark, who I adore, is cooking up the pasta. Logan Griffith is doing the pizza. And Manube Inu is the executive pastry chef. And she applies that trompe l'oeil to the desserts especially. Um, she does a tiramisu unlike any I've ever seen before. It's really fun and fabulous. Uh, we also popped into Dauphine's, Kyle Bailey's restaurant with the New Orleans style. Um, there are so many new dishes that he is serving up there. Of course, I had the oysters Dauphine and his housemate charcuterie. Um, they have a new duck paella that is absolutely fabulous and totally worth checking out and of course they lit our table on fire with the baked alaska at the end and then jp sabote's jane jane uh it's the new cocktail bar it's a little gem on 14th street um indoor and outdoor drinking available they do really lovely and smart craft cocktails and i'm a wine drinker they have my rosé for me um but he jp is really stirring up um beautiful drinks with little snacks they do take reservations and I advise it. So, okay, that gives you plenty to do locally, but let's get on with the show. So is pizza subjective? Does where you grow up dictate your pizza taste? New York by the slice, soupy Neapolitan, flat panini style Roman, pinza or deep dish Chicago. I don't even know what's going on in New Haven or Detroit style, but those are pizza styles as well. Um, who better to dig deep and even deeper than the team behind Modernist Cuisine Lab and the authors of such books as Modernist Cuisine, The Art of Science and Cooking and Modernist Cuisine at Home. Now they have Modernist Pizza and Francisco Migoya is the co-author and he joins me. But first, uh, Indie Chef community or ICC is coming to DC for a one-time only collaborative chef's week dinner series. It's happening October 14th and 16th and Grover Smith is the founder and he has all the details. Hey Grover, how are you? Hi Nikki, how are you? I'm well. I'm good. I'm good. So talk to me about what this is. Give me a little background on Indie Chef's community. Yeah, so we've been doing um, activations or events across markets in the U.S. I've done now, I believe, 15 markets across the U.S. over the last five years. Mm -hmm. um, and over time, the focus kind of began um, kind of clarifying around the, the chef experience and trying to create uh, an opportunity for them to get together, um, get to know each other in an environment they wouldn't get to know outside of this event. Um, and, you know, become lifelong friends um, from different markets. Um, I always say the dinners are the excuse. You know, we put these dinners on in order to get folks together from all over the country. Um, and we set up kind of a slate of things to do over four or five days in a market. And this time, obviously, we're going to be in D.C. Um, kind of set around their experience that allows them to get out of their kitchens, you know, start seeing the forest instead of just the trees, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. um, step back and be able to talk with like minded folks that they may not meet outside of this. Um, and so, you know, we put on these series of 12 course dinners featuring roughly 24 chefs uh, with wine pairings at different venues throughout the U.S. This week we'll be at the line um, in D.C. for for basically three services of dinners, um, kind of showcasing what they do in their home restaurants, 
Um, and then the finale is basically kind of a 12 course collaborative dinner where we pair all the chefs up in teams of two to collaborate on a dish. And they use their time in the city and the kind of itinerary set up with them throughout the week um, to kind of use that as the backdrop and the inspiration for the dishes they create for the finale dinner um, that'll be on Saturday the 16th this time. And so um, it really is kind of a completely um, created like on the spot. We provide them with what their proteins are going to be the night before. Um, they work together um, and work with local purveyors and farmers that our host, Opie Crooks, has been really great in connecting us with to get all the best in produce and, and items that we can get in that wonderful mid-Atlantic region in order to come up with some dishes that kind of tell the story of their week getting to know each other and the time they spend in D.C. Well, so when the chefs are getting together and um you're pairing them. I mean, a lot of these people know, like, I'm sure some of them know each other yeah. from, cause it's not, I mean, you have a, a terrific mix of uh, DC chefs, um, but you brought in people from California and New Hampshire and, um, and North Carolina. So how do you go about pairing them together? Are you trying to um, do good matches or you're trying to do interesting well, matches? Like what's, what's the process? Well, so it kind of depends. I mean, you'd be surprised. So, you know, one of the things we like to say is that, you know, we're building stronger chef communities one city at a time. And I say that because as an example, um, Tim Ma and Kevin Tian, who are both participating in this, this event, they actually were not friends prior to participating in two of the events that I did in Richmond and DC. Um, and they've since gone on to become very close friends. And obviously yeah, they, they do a uh, lot of work together. They co-founded Chef Stopping API Hate. And I encourage yeah. you to talk to Kevin or Tim about it, but they were not, they were acquaintances who kind of knew of each other and kind of were competitors uh, down the road. And a lot of what our, our interest in this is to kind of strip away a lot of the machismo and bravado that goes into restaurants. And, you know, you know, back in the day when people used to go get drinks at a bar on a regular basis after service, a lot of times you go in and you'd see another chef or another person that worked in a different food and beverage operation. And they'd say, hey, are you busy this week? And, you know, how service? And the answer is always, oh, we're really busy. We're busier this week, this week than last. And everything's great. And it's because, you know, they tend to silo themselves and not necessarily share information amongst each other because they look at each other as competitors. And we're trying to kind yeah, of- Yeah, but I got to be honest. I mean, I've been covering the DC food and wine scene for the last 18 years. And the DC community- and I know this because I, I work in other markets, but the DC community, a lot of these chefs play very well in the sandbox together. They do. So they do events together all the time. They support each other's events. A lot of them headline events and they bring in each other. It's a very diverse crew. And um, there's a lot of uplifting of others. So do that's you, do you not find that in other markets? That's more the exception than the rule, to be honest. Um, like I, I don't want to name markets or whatever, but you do no, tend no, to no. Find, like, okay. there's certain there's certain markets that are extremely competitive for different reasons. There are others that, you know, there isn't a, a tight knit sense of community for other reasons. I mean, it, it kind of varies from market to market. DC has always been one of my favorites. This will be the third or fourth time I've done an event at DC over a weekend. And um, I do see that. Uh, it is definitely one of the tighter ones. There are still some factions. So, you know, we won't get into the details of that. There's a little bit of that. No, I mean, there's the, the old part. guard and then there's the new old guard and now there's the young guard. I mean, I could yeah. see where the lines are dividing. But, um, but they all, I mean, it's, I think it DC is a very interesting market when it comes to the chefs and comes to the people who love them. The food community here, the foodie community here is, is pretty, um, pretty dire. They love them. I mean, it's incredible to be honest. I mean, I, you know, this is kind of boring stuff, but looking at metrics on people like reading email blasts and like the kind of conversions you have in sales and tickets and stuff like that, like DC is one of the more exciting ones. And I think part of that is, you know, you do have a very strong community. Um, and then 
on top of it, you also, you know, you're the highest dual income earning city in the U.S. And so people tend to spend a lot more to go out to eat. So they're able to support restaurants more so than other markets, if that makes sense. So it's not as much of a, you know, a competitive in that fashion, whereas other markets that maybe have had a large explosion of the restaurant scene, they don't have that same kind of support because there's not the same financial support available as there would be in a city like DC. Like, you know, so right. you see- No, the breadth and depth is different. I'm totally with you on that. So what can people look forward to with this event? Who are some of, like you mentioned two of the chefs, let's talk about some of the people you're bringing into town. And can yep. you let us know about some of your pairings? Yeah, of course. And I, I didn't even answer that question, but I'll do that as we go through. Thank you for reminding okay. me. So coming in from out of town. So I've got Tyler Aiken coming, um, who's the chef of La Cavalier in Wilmington, Delaware. He's, you know, one of the board members for the IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Really incredible chef. Also has some restaurants in Philadelphia. I'm excited to have him come and participate. Um, we've got Let's see, Jamilka Borges, um, who is based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She's opening a restaurant called Wild Child, uh, makes really incredible Puerto Rican food um, and kind of with a new American twist on it. Um, Justin Severino is also coming from Pittsburgh. From who, Pittsburgh, um, uh-huh. Yeah, and he's actually almost out of the restaurant game. He now operates a really Salty bits. Yeah, salty pork bits. Really incredible mm-hmm. um, charcuterie and sausages. He actually does his without mold, which is kind of a, uh, not necessarily- He's been um, on this show. I'm I'm sure. And and Justin's like a riot. I love him to death. Um, We have children that are around the same age. So uh, we're both late in age dads. Uh, But Justin will be in town. I've got, let's see. So we had to keep the out-of-towners somewhat limited because of COVID. We're trying not to bring 18 people. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, it it must change it a little bit to how you used to do it because travel, people aren't as concerned are you um insisting on everybody being vaccinated so we, are, we, do, we are doing so the participants are required to be vaccinated as are the guests in dc and right. our typical mix if we did 24 chefs is we'd bring in 18 chefs from other markets to cook with six locals um part of the reason we did kind of the reverse mix this time is one because of covid concerns and bringing a bunch of people together from different markets we do do a serial testing program while folks are there and they're vaccinated as well so they're tested daily just out of an abundance of caution um but it's also because like we have so many relationships in DC. It's hard for me to do an event without inviting most of them to participate. I know, you'll piss people off. Yeah, I don't want to piss anyone off and make sure everybody's happy. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then, you know, let's see who else is coming. Uh, Alan Delgado is coming, who was the chef uh, for R&D for Osamoco and Zelenin and, and New York and Brooklyn. Zelenin's a really hot uh, vegan restaurant open or owned by Justin Bazderic. Um, mm-hmm. He's now just doing R&D. Um, God, who else is coming from out of town? Steve Chu is coming from Ekaben in Baltimore. So we've got a nice mix. Um, a really good mix. And then uh, um, what can people expect from the two dinners? So there's three in total. There's two oh, on three Thursday total. night. So, but what's the, the difference between all the dinners? So the Thursday night dinners are what we call the preliminary dinners. And so we they're happening basically the same night, 30 minutes apart in different rooms at the line. Each one has roughly 12 chefs participating, one course each. Um, the menus themselves, I'll know what they are by the end of the day, but we basically leave it up to them. Um, they submit what they want to submit within certain parameters, and then we course it out as best we can to create a coherent progression. Sometimes we'll ask them to make some changes, but we will post menus by tomorrow. But they're going to get 12 uh, courses and a tasting menu format with really incredible natural wine pairings from native selections that uh, distributes there in DC. Um, and it's kind of like an interactive experience. We discuss the dishes as they come out. We run a very tight ship. We do the 12 courses in under two and a half hours. So you have courses coming out every six to eight minutes. Um, I don't like long form four hour uh, tasting menu dinners. They're just too long. You for don't me. like your tushy to hurt? 
No, not necessarily. Um, I'm pretty skinny too, so I can't sit in a chair that long. I don't have okay. much padding, but um, no, I mean, I just like a wildly fun dinner with a lot of people that know each other and are getting to know each other. We try to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit to give them some background on why they're making what they make and what they do in their own restaurants and their home markets and have discussions around the relationships and what it's like to participate in something like this. Um, and then those are the two dinners Thursday. And then the, the Saturday grand finale, um, like we'll get to the pairings now. We basically pair them up in teams of two. They collaborate with certain parameters. And when we choose the pairings, it, it kind of depends. I mean, sometimes we're looking at people that work from similar cuisines that we think we might be interesting mashups. Sometimes we look at historical mashups in different cuisines um, that may have a history together to see if they'd be a good pair to do something kind of different and off the cuff. Um, sometimes it has to do with setting up a mentor and mentee relationship, you know, knowing what we know about the folks that participate in our events, like, you know, who would be a great person for them to get to know better, to advocate for, um, you know. Well, I mean, you it mentioned it earlier, putting together Kevin and, um, and Tim, and Tim yeah. right? I mean, they should have been great friends. And yeah, they I mean, are. they did. So we, we we paired them up intentionally because of that, to be honest, is I was surprised that they didn't really know each other that well. And I wanted them to get to know each other. And as a result, I think they've done some really incredible stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're not always a slam dunk, like explosion, you know, in the best possible way. Sometimes they're a bit of a challenge. Um, but we also try to look as far as the looking into their personalities. We want to make sure that one person isn't driving the ship and the other person kind of falling behind. We want to set them up for success, if that makes sense. And, you know, this whole event is crafted around setting them up for success, serving food that's representative of what they serve in their own restaurants and not going to some grand tasting where they're serving like bites in a, in a paper uh, boat, if that makes sense. So it, that totally makes sense. And I'll be really we should circle back because I'm really interested to see post, hopefully post pandemic someday what how that changes because i think yeah. that event style is going to go by the wayside um listen grover i really appreciate you joining me today i love this event i think it's great to bring all these different minds and talent together in one room for three nights tell everybody where they can find it online and get tickets yeah so it's just indiechefs.com i-n-d-i-e chefs.com and there's a link right there for the dc event and it's all laid out with the rosters and details right there for you Excellent. Thanks so much. This is Nikki Nellis. We're going to talk pizza in just a sec. It's Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. And we're back on Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis. You should be following me on social at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S. We'll keep you posted on everything going on in the food, wine, and hospitality scene. So as I said in the beginning of the show, uh, the show uh, cheese, bread, and sauce. I mean, that's so yummy. I'm sure I just made my uh, next guest a little annoyed by oversimplifying the deliciousness of pizza. Um, but there is so much skill that does go into pizza making. And there's so many styles, Neapolitan, Chicago deep dish, Sicilian, and I don't even know where cacciapori or Turkish pies, where how that all fits into pizzas. Um, there's so many ingredients, sauce, cheese, toppings. Then there's so many ways to heat them. Do we do cold? Do we do wood? Um, can I just use my oven? What does it take to make pizza delicious? Francisco Magoya, who is co-author of Modernist Pizza, enjoys me. This is a massive, massive undertaking. So, um, Francisco, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks. Um, so, our last guest was completely distracted by your James Beard Award uh, <laughs> showing up behind you, a little bit of bragging. So, tell us a little bit about your background and that James Beard Award. 
So I am the head chef at Modernist Cuisine. We're located in Seattle, Washington. And uh, I've been working here for close to eight years. Prior to working here, I was a professor at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde mm -hmm. Park, New York, uh, where I taught baking and pastry. Uh, prior to that, and I also wrote three books while I was a professor there. Um, prior to that, I was the executive pastry chef at the French Laundry in California. Uh, and Bouchon Bakery for a year and a half. Um, before that, I worked around a bunch of restaurants in New York City for a few years. Um, so you've been around. I've been around for a few you've years. You've been around. Yeah. You've got yeah. some talent behind you. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lovely resume. <laughs> Sounds like you're bragging a bit, but it does sound like a great resume. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. I, I, no, I'm just it, teasing you. <laughs> um, so how do you go from teaching the CIA Mm -hmm. And uh, how did you wind up with the Modernist Cuisine Lab? So I, I think it was in part thanks to the books I wrote that I got a phone call from a recruiter here at Modernist Cuisine because my books are not necessarily for uh, consumers. They're more for professionals and students. So they're focused more to that sort of uh, more technical um, knowledge. And uh, I think Nathan Mirvold, who is, who is the founder of Modernist Cuisine, uh, found that appealing for the books that he wanted to write after writing Modernist Cuisine, which is it's the science of gastronomy and cooking. He wanted to move on into the realm of bread and baking and pastry and so forth. So, Which I thought was really interesting because yes. that initial, what is six, six books, right? It Five. Was it was massive and it was yes. so intricate and so detailed and the photography was so right. amazing. I mean, nobody had ever seen anything like it. So it right. was unbelievable to me that there was even more to dig deeper <laughs> to. Right. Yeah. And I think it was a very interesting subject matter because if we think of bread and you just look at it on its surface, it's four ingredients, water, flour, salt, yeast. How complicated can it be? Well, it turns out it's extremely complicated. It's it's one of the few foods that if you just alter the components uh, in different ways and you treat them, you nudge them in slightly different directions, you can obtain completely different results and still call it bread. Um, so there, there is a lot of complexity that goes into it. And that was a, in our mind, a natural segue into pizza because we did have pizza in, in our original bread book. There was a large-ish section on pizza. Uh, mm -hmm. It was, you know, it, it was actually getting too big. Our book was getting like, it was gonna be beyond five volumes. And so we had to find places to trim it down so that we could keep it at five volumes. And one of the things that made the most sense to us was to cut down or cut out the pizza, but not completely remove it, but focus on a full on research project that would be dedicated to pizza. So um, if you think of it, it's also fermented dough, it has, you know, it has certain characteristics that are very similar to bread. So it seemed like a natural progression for us. Well, so let's get into pizza. Um, what, how, what is the history of pizza? Like where, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot, of, I know the Italians sort of have a hold on it, but if you look across the Mediterranean, there <laughs> are all sorts of similar entities. And you yes. guys did a deep dive. What, what did your research sort of show? The, without a doubt, the origin of pizza in itself, as we know it, is Naples. Um, now, 
before that, uh, yes, there were flatbreads all over the Middle East, right? I mean, there's pita, there's naan uh, in India. Uh, there are, uh, you know, numerous flatbreads all throughout the Middle East, but would you call them pizza? And that is, that is where, you know, we have to provide the answer, the which line. is, yeah. I mean, and you have to really work on it. Like you work on a gene genealogy tree uh, or uh, it's, it's basically, you have to go from, you know, present to past rather than go from the past to the future because it's easier to trace it that way. So mm -hmm. what we know as pizza today is more directly, uh, you can trace its lineage more to Neapolitan style pizza than say, uh, you know, most flatbreads, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it can get confusing because if somebody asks you, well, what is pizza? Um, that can be a very complex answer to give because it's easier to say what is not pizza than what is pizza. Okay. Right? I mean, it's uh, if we look at pizzas, it's tomato. So, I mean, it's dough. Obviously, it's a baked dough, bread-like dough. Uh, it's yeast leavened that you put sauce and cheese on top. But you would say, yeah, but I've seen pizza without sauce. Right. I've seen, right? you know, like in Rome, I had uh, a, the very first time I went to Italy, I was in Rome. Mm -hmm. This is mm -hmm. a very long time ago. Mm -hmm. And their pizza was baked on trays, long mm -hmm. trays. And it was covered with potatoes and rosemary, and mm -hmm. they cut it with a regular pizza slicer, but then folded it and gave mm -hmm. it to me like a sandwich. And I was right. like, what's happening here? <laughs> right. And, you know, there's, there's like, I don't think there's such thing as pizza police, but it, there's, you can call pizza really anything you want, right? I mean, that that's, if I, if I think of what you just described to me, I would have called it a sandwich too. And right. in fact, if, if you go to Rome present day and you go to one of the best pizzerias there, which is Bonci, uh, uh, B-O-N-C-I, it is outrageously good. It's baked, a baked crust with different toppings of all kinds, the, either applied pre-bake or post-bake. Uh, they cut it to order for you. You tell them how big you want it and they cut it that size. But if you look at it very strictly speaking, it's an open face sandwich. Right. But, right. But we're going to call it pizza because just it's almost like there's a point where tradition dictates that you have to call it pizza. And I would say the same for Chicago deep dish. Right. I mean, you look at Chicago deep dish, a lot of people are like, that's not pizza, it's a casserole. But how could we not include deep dish in our book? I mean, it's out of the question to not include it. We had to definitely. Well, so, did you, so in dish. the book, if you started in Naples, and you followed sort of the line of where, how pizza grew. Like right. I said at the beginning of the show, like I grew up outside New York City. I mm -hmm. ate, you know, pizza by the slice. That was pizza. And it wasn't right. until I was older and, and also things changed. Like there wasn't Neapolitan style, you know, the growth of Neapolitan style pizzerias in the country really right. sort of took off like mid eighties, early nineties. And then all of our sort of take of pizza uh -huh. changed because um, yes. we weren't eating soupy pizza before that, you know. Uh -huh. um, so it depended on where you live, New Haven style, Detroit, Chicago. Yes. I don't know what they were eating in California. Um, <laughs> but uh, so that's my question. How how did it start in Naples and, and how has it traveled across the water? Did it change? It's a, it's a super interesting story. Uh, and it's a story that starts with tragedy, really, because the the reason why pizza spread from Naples to the rest of the world, it's not because the Neapolitan people voluntarily wanted to leave Naples. It is because of cholera. And because of this epidemic, uh, first of all, a lot of people died. 
But there was a point in time after Italy had been uh, unified in 17, 1879 or so, that one of the first things that King Umberto I did was uh, with this uh, city of Naples was to do uh, the, what is called the risanimento or the, the, the cleaning up of the city uh, because it had a terrible sewage situation that had to be remedied. That was the, the source of the problem of cholera. Uh, but it, it meant displacing a lot of people from where the, the sewer lines had to go uh, and all the cleaning up had to happen. And so uh, where do these people go when they're di displaced? They're going to go, they, they had to leave their country. In fact, the, the country was encouraging them to leave. Right. There wasn't a like, no, you know, stick around. It's like, and now everybody wants to get back in. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so most of the uh, the people who emigrated from Italy, most of them went to New York, which was uh, uh, one of the preferred destinations for Italians. But there were also a few other places where they ended up uh, where there are now large populations of, of descendants of these immigrants, uh, namely in Sao Paulo, Brazil and in Buenos Aires, Argentina, um, where they have actually very distinct styles of pizza. So when pizza arrives to New York, um, and it's the same story with pizza as it gets to different places of the world, is that it adapts to what, people adapt it to what they have. Um, and maybe you don't have the, you know, the wood fire burning oven, maybe there's a different kind of oven that bakes at a lower temperature. The flour is different, the tomatoes are different, the cheese is different. And so you're still gonna make pizza, uh, you know, we, we have one of the, the first historical references of pizza in New York is in 1895. I am a man who was named Filippo Milone, who has started a pizzeria around that time, and he opened a, you know, a few others. Um, but that's the first historical reference we have. Before that, there were surely pizzerias that are unaccounted for. Um, but it's hard to imagine that there would be so many Italian immigrants and no pizza, right? I mean, that's, they don't wait you know, 20 years to have their first pizza. So uh, we have to go by historical records. And that is the first historical record that we have a pizza in the United States. It's 1895. Um, so, and then it moves, you know, from the East Coast, it goes deeper into, uh, you know, the, the West. Uh, and, you know, that's how it ends up in places like New Haven, which is not that far West of, of New York City, I understand. But um, a lot of the pizza in New Haven, it, a lot of experts say that is, is probably what is the most similar to how pizza originally was in Naples, because it was a very insular community that established itself in New Haven of um, Neapolitans and Sicilians as well. Um, in fact, the way they call pizza there, which is apiz or A-P-I-Z-Z, it's, it's dialect. It's not Italian per se, it's a dialect uh, from Campania, which is how they would say pizza. And so a lot of the, the, the vernacular that is utilized in New Haven for pizza is, is from that very insular community of Italians that kind of kept everything tightly knit in there. And you're gonna see a lot of pizzerias that do a very similar style. It's very different from what you see in present day Naples, uh, but it's definitely its own style of pizza. And you well, were- so would, when we talk about pizza, like the original pizza based on your research, mm -hmm. um, was it that soupy Neapolitan pizza that we see today? Yes, well, I, I have to I have to say something, and that is that if it's soupy, it's not properly done. Okay. Um, if you have I the a soup was supposed to be no 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 that's make makes it awful. Um, if you have a slice of pizza that has the sauce and the, basically when you have 
cheese that when it melts, it's going to like let go of a lot of its moisture serum. Water, right? Um, and when the sauce isn't properly made, you have to have a proper evaporation in that high temperature oven of the moisture in the cheese and the moisture in the sauce so that it doesn't turn out soupy because you don't want to cut a slice and have a puddle of sauce and cheese. It has right. to be a slice that you can pick up and you're not going to have all of this like thing falling off. It's If you've had soupy Neapolitan, I want to make one for you one day properly done that is not soupy. And it's a world of difference because I, I've heard what you say. I've actually heard a couple of people who are you know so-called food critics um, that say that about Neapolitan pizza and it's not, I. I, I want to, you know, make sure that it's clear that if it's soupy, it's not properly done. Well, so I think the way the story got told, if I'm mm -hmm. correct, it's sort of like the whole cupcake debate about whether you, you can eat it right out of the fridge or you have to let it come to room temperature first. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's kind of similar that you had these uh, Neapolitan, you know, DOCG, Neapolitan pizzerias opening up around the country mm -hmm. and it wasn't like a New York slice. So it wasn't right, yes. soggier in the middle, you know? It yes, was that is an, so they, an apt description, yes. Right, so they, they called it soupy and they were like, no, 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 this is the way it's supposed to be. So right. I agree with your assessment, but I think that's how the, I think it's like yes. how the story got told. That's a good observation for sure, because there is a radical difference. And that's, if somebody has never had Neapolitan pizza and they've only had like, let's say New York style, it is, even though it's both, like a baked dough with sauce and cheese, they're very different animals. And right. you could go Absolutely. as far as also like Detroit pizza. And within those three, it's almost like a Great Dane, a Chihuahua, and a Greyhound. Right, I mean, they're both these, dogs. <laughs> yeah, so, but they're, they're, they're completely different, right? Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Real Fun DC. <sighs> Serving up thought for food. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. So now let's talk about, uh, just let's talk about ingredients for just a sec. Um, yes. Let's talk about sauce. Let's talk about cheese. Um, you know, like New York style, you know, doesn't use fresh mozzarella. They use shredded mozzarella. And Correct. Mm -hmm. Neapolitan uses, you know, fresh buffalo usually, right? And mm -hmm. um, I don't know what they, I don't know what they're using in the deep dish up in Chicago <laughs> or uh, what they're using elsewhere, but how, how did that all come to be? The it's a form and function, form follows okay. function sort of um, deal where the the hotter the temperature, for example, for a Neapolitan pizza, you need a, a wetter sauce. It needs to be um, not like tomato juice per se because that's too loose. But if if I look at this uh, like a New York tomato sauce, it's thicker. It's something that I could spread on toast if I wanted to. Not that I would, but you could. Uh, it's a little bit thicker. You could. Yeah. I might. <laughs> you could. <laughs> I yeah. That. I mean, you know, and that's that's fantastic too because it has many purposes, right? Um, but then if I look at the sauce that I would put on a Chicago deep dish or Detroit, it's almost like a paste. It's something that you almost are able to like spoon on top of something, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I want to have a really loose sauce if I'm going into a 900 or 850 degree Fahrenheit oven. Because if my sauce is pretty dry, even in those 60 or 70 seconds that the pizza takes to cook, you're going to have a burnt sauce. Right. And it'll just sort of evaporate, right? Like all the right. liquid will just go. And it goes fast. I mean, it huh. really is like when you bake a Neapolitan pizza, you can't put it in the oven and go do something else. You got to really pay attention because everything happens in a matter of seconds. You can actually quantify 
what occurs, you know, not second to second, but in five second increments, radical changes are happening in the pizza. But in a New York style, that's a pizza that is a lower temperature oven, it takes about six to seven minutes. So it needs to be not as wet uh, because then you'd have a really gummy pizza coming out of the oven. Uh, sure. That would definitely be a lot soupier. Um, and the cheese is also very important because if you, you talked earlier about the cheese that is used in Neapolitan, they either use a mozzarella di bufala or fior di latte. The mozzarella di bufala is made with buffalo cow's milk, uh, which is a has a fire, higher fat content uh, than regular cow milk has. So the whole milk that you see in the grocery store is about 3.6 to 4% fat, where buffalo milk is 8% fat. Yeah. Um, so it's it's 100% more. And so it's a different cheese, but uh, you know, different fat proportion, but it's they're both considered fresh mozzarella. So it's the stringy, really white, very moist cheese that also it has to be that moist so that in that one minute or so that it's in the oven, it's not going to turn from brown to black on you. Right. Okay? So what you see in New York style pizza uh, and pizzas that are baked in lower temperature ovens is that it's called part skin mozzarella or low moisture mozzarella, or in some instances, very colloquially called pizza cheese. Um, it's, it is a descendant of mozzarella. It's, it, it's also in the realm of like what it's called pasta filata cheeses, which are the string cheeses, uh -huh. uh, but a lot lower moisture. And you have this much lower moisture that what's gonna do is it's gonna bake on the par of the baking of the crust. So crust browns, the cheese browns, and they more or less bake at the same rate. Well, because so those have... pizzas are usually done in like a deck oven. Yeah, yes, and it's a much lower temperature. Right, but right. It's, 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 it does a deck oven. I mean, the science of it, is the deck oven the heat's not circulated right well it it the hot air circulates for sure so okay. in a in a deck oven you're typically going to have a heat source on the bottom which is the oven floor um the oven floor is going to be made of a composite material that is going to absorb the heat from either the gas or the flames or whatever circulating underneath it it absorbs the heat and then it radiates it into the food but then you also have heat coils on the top of the deck Right. Um, and those heat coils look very much like your broiler at home um, in your oven, where it's just it's going to it's direct heat that is radiating into the pizza. And so New York style is mostly baked in that type of oven. It's about 550 to 600 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but the air is going to be partly responsible for for the cooking of the pizza. The pizza um, yeah. Um, Can we talk about fire yes. a little bit because, yes. you know, what about the char of the crust? You know, mm -hmm. the, the science of it, was there anything as you were doing all the research and doing mm -hmm. all the testing for the book and all the fun traveling, which we'll get to yes. in a second, mm -hmm. um, was there something about the science of it that really surprised you or you were like, oh, I didn't put that together? I mean, mm -hmm. really, this is how you think when you cook because it is a science, but was there anything in there that you were like, oh, I didn't see that coming? Well, I think the, the most important uh, research that we wanted to do was to you know basically answer a question does it, does the wood matter when you're cooking a, a neapolitan pizza is, is it is the wood part of the equation is it an important part of the equation or uh can you get a uh excellent pizza without wood fire mm. um because a lot of people when they you know when they favor wood fired baked pizza uh is for numerous reasons uh one is well it's the oven they have um, and it, it is the most economical form of, of, of high temperature baking is wood. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's what you're going to see in most pizzerias in Naples because that's, you know, for 
decades, maybe a century in some cases, they've made pizza with those ovens. Um, and the wood in and of itself, it turns out that it's not really responsible for much, but for producing heat. Um, because any food that is gonna take on the flavor of you know, whatever smoke the wood is producing, usually takes a long time, right? If you think of like smoked bacon or sure. any smoked sausage or even salmon, it's not a 60 second deal. I mean, in mm -hmm. 60 seconds, nothing is going to flavor it. It's not, it's impossible for that, that smoke to really permeate the pizza and contribute its flavor to it. Um, in fact, we took a picture that shows in the book how the layer of smoke actually hovers six inches above the pizza. It doesn't even mm -hmm. touch it. Um, and so the, what you're smelling when you enter a pizzeria that uses a wood-fired oven is what's in the air. And so aroma really accounts for a lot of our flavor perception, right? And the aroma is either coming from what's really in front of us or what's in the air. And so it's not, it doesn't flavor the pizza better. It doesn't cook it better. People who are pro wood fire are gonna say, well, that's how we do it and it's a great pizza. And it's like, yes, of course. I mean, just like eventually riding a unicycle is gonna be your preferred way if you do it every day. Right, and you like it. You move around and, sure. and it's what your family has done for decades and that you're gonna make it work. But uh, for us, definitely, we have an oven here that it's it basically can switch between wood fired and gas. Mm -hmm. um, the gas, what it did is, first of all, it burns a lot cleaner. Um, it doesn't, you don't need to chop down a tree for gas. Um, and so it's, it burns a lot cleaner, but also it gives us a very consistent temperature. The biggest problem you have with wood is maintaining a constant temperature because you don't know adding one more piece of wood, what, how many degrees is that going to increase sure. uh, the temperature in my oven? It's kind of a crapshoot. Uh, where with gas, you have a thermostat and it's regulated. And if you need 850 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to have 850 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, recovery time is important for a lot of pizza makers because the pizza goes in the oven. It cools the floor down wherever that pizza comes in contact. So I need to make sure my oven can recover from that drop uh, as quickly as possible so I can continue making pizzas. And this is true whether you're selling them or mm -hmm. you're making them at home. You need a quick recovery so you can make a good pizza. Well, and I think that brings us to the next point. This book is also, this is not a professional's only book. This is Correct. a book for the home cook. So it is a certain cook who wants this kind of knowledge yes. and, and finds mm -hmm. it interesting. But what did you put in this book that makes it um, for the home cook? Yes. So actually, I think most of what took um, a lot of work was figuring out how to make good pizza at home. Because the biggest we don't have the challenge, ovens. correct? That is the number one challenge you have. Everything else can be equalized. You can make a great dough if you mix it by hand or you don't have a mixer. I mean, of course it's more work, but in the end you can make a really good dough by hand if you wanted to. You can control the temperature of your dough by either mixing the dough with cold water if your room is too hot. Like there's many factors that you can control to make a really good dough. The challenge you're gonna have is that your oven, maybe you personally have a great oven at home, but most ovens, um, aren't very good. Uh, they aren't very good because they're designed to make many different things, but none particularly well. Um, so you well, can... that makes me feel much better. Thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, it is. It's true because it's they're designed to either roast a turkey or you know braise you know a pot of you know whatever you know oxtail or whatever or a salmon. Like it's for everything, but it does nothing particularly well. So you have to kind of hack it to make it work for you. And the best thing that we found for making pizza at home 
is to utilize a, um, a piece of equipment that's called a baking steel. Um, a baking steel is a 3 eighths of an inch piece of metal, it's steel. It's a, a dark colored steel that is fantastic at not just absorbing heat, but also rating it into the pizza. So we like to keep our, our baking steel, and the one I have at home, I always keep it in my oven. It never comes out uh, because it's not just for pizza. When I'm roasting vegetables, I put my pan directly on the baking steel. It's gonna cook it faster. It's gonna basically get that heat into the food faster. Uh, but also it, it recovers very quickly. So it's a thick metal, it's a very dense metal um, that is going to give you a really nice crispy bottom on your pizza. I keep it close to the top, like four inches from my broiler. Why? Because your oven's gonna be hotter on the top than it's gonna be at the bottom, right? Because heat rises. And so if I keep my pizza, my baking steel four inches from the top, I'm gonna have a concentration of heat that is gonna make my pizza, it's gonna brown a lot nicer. It's gonna give it a nice like speckling on the surface. Uh, the base is gonna be nice and crispy, which is a big problem you have. If you, if you bake with a baking stone, it's fine. It's not as good as a baking steel, but it's better than nothing. Um, if you're just baking on a sheet pan, you're gonna get like a soggy base on your pizza. So um, it also works great for any pizza you might bake in a pan. So if you're doing like Roman style, or if you're doing Sicilian in a pan or Detroit, baking that on the steel is gonna give us a really nice crispy base. So uh, it is one of the best investments you can make for good pizza at home. So, I mean, I love that people can use this at home and they can apply this well-researched science and use it into their own cooking without feeling sort of bad about their kitchens, right? right understanding right. the process. But there's something new that you put in this, which is the um, the travel component. That's not something yes. you normally did. Correct. So why yes. and what can we get out of it? The most important reason was to learn. Uh, there's pizza being made in so many different parts of the world uh, that it's hard to be uh, an expert at many different styles. And so what we wanted to do was go and visit notable pizzerias around the world, notable pizza makers, and those that were willing to talk to us and teach us, that's where we went and learned. Um, for example, in 2018, we went to Naples. Well, we went to Naples a couple of times, in total, we went to Italy three separate times in 2018, uh, two or three weeks at a time, visiting pizzerias in Central Italy, Southern Italy, Northern Italy. There's, they're very different in and of this themselves. This sounds terrible. This sounds horrible. <laughs> this sounds like a terrible gig. Yes, it was, it, well, okay. It was fantastic. But after you eat 15 to 18 pizzas a day, your body's like asking for peace and just right. a salad and a Vegetables. carrot. right. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> But we also traveled to, uh, earlier I mentioned Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo. Uh, mm -hmm. At first we were on the fence, but then when we started to learn about it, we realized how different it was from anything we'd had before. Um, so we had to go there and we spent one week in Buenos Aires, uh, one week in Sao Paulo. To put it in context, Sao Paulo has a 2,000 pizzerias in the city alone. I mean, wow. that's how important pizza is. And also has its own set of traditions, like they only have pizza for dinner, you never eat it with your hands. Uh, very interesting cultural stuff that is beyond just making the pizza. Um, and Buenos Aires has like a very thick crust pizza, almost like Detroit, but the amount of cheese on it is so insane that when you cut a slice, it melts, it, it drapes, it covers a slice completely. It's like 
cheese covered pizza. It's good, yeah. but you can have one slice and you're done. That's it. Wow. Um, and so that, and we went to Tokyo as well uh, because there, there's a, a, a very uh, almost cult-like uh, passion for Neapolitan style pizza. Mm. Um, and then everywhere in the United States that had a, either a pizza style that was important or a city in which pizza uh, was, the pizzerias were a very high quality. Like for example, Portland, Oregon, doesn't have a pizza style in and of itself, but it has right, fantastic like a culture. Experience. Yeah, and San Francisco too. Los Angeles has a lot. I mean, they have like California style, um, but for the most part, they have fantastic pizzerias. California has a really good amount of pizzerias. Well, um, but obviously, went to Detroit. I think that's what's interesting about pizza. Mm -hmm. Like it's everywhere. It is an internet. It is now an international cuisine. Yes. Um, so like DC doesn't have a pizza style but right. we have every variety right. here um and i i mean i think that's what i that's what people love about pizza that it's it's not singular in its right. presentation um there's so many ways to enjoy it there are and it's it's a i, I don't have like a preferred style i think that an important thing to do as a food lover or pizza lover is to really try to see um uh, and taste as many different styles as you want because they're they're all really fantastic and so it, there's that's part of the 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 story that we're trying to tell is that there's there isn't such thing as bad or terrible pizza um no if, if it's I a totally different disagree. style there is some bad pizza okay there which is, one oh it. yes some of the national chains like whatever yeah, yeah, they're yeah. doing no, right. i don't know what that is <laughs> no but when the when i mean more in the realm of the styles right i mean i, I, I saw the execution, um, you know, by a high quality pizzeria of, of a different style is what I meant. But yes, chains definitely. It's a it's a different. It's it is still pizza, but maybe not as good pizza. Um, but the styles that when they're properly executed, if they're different, I think that they're worth appreciating in that regard. I couldn't agree more. I want to thank you so much for joining me and for going down the rabbit hole of all the science behind the pizza and the history. Um, I have no doubt that the uh, volumes that you guys dedicated to uh, modernist pizza are just full of more of this information can you tell everybody where they can find the book and where they can find you yes so they can find us at modernistcuisine.com mm -hmm. uh, our social media tag is at mod cuisine and they can buy the book at modernistcuisineshop.com so uh, it ships for free uh, around the united states excellent thank you so much so that made me want pizza in all different styles. Um, I don't think I'm a Detroit fan, but I am a Sicilian fan. I do love Sicilian pizza because of all the chunky tomatoes. And we didn't even get into that very much. But uh, given that they have five huge volumes dedicated to pizza, I don't think we we're going to get through all of it on this show. But it was an absolute delight uh, to talk to the chef and to also talk with um, Grover Smith and the Indie Chefs community and what they're going to be doing here later in the week. Of course, you can find all this information on the listareyouwanna.com. I hope you'll follow me at Nikki Nellis at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I thank you so much for joining me here on Real Fun DC. Um, once again, I'm your host, Nikki Nellis on Industry Night. Uh, we'll see you next week. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Real Fun DC.